Welcome to our opening segment, Lame Jokes with Maoli, where Maoli makes a joke and I will ultimately hate it and regret my life choice. <laughs> knock, knock. Knock, knock. Knock, knock. I'm not answering the damn door. I have a peephole and I can clearly see it's you trying to tell me a lame joke. Fine, you party pooper. I'll just tell another joke. What do you call a polar bear with rapid mood swings? Live in both the Arctic and the Antarctic and has male and female partners. Just say the punchline, man. A bipolar? Bipolar? Bipolar bear! I... I actually like it, but then I hate that I like it. You're welcome. Bleh. <laughs> Welcome to Sci-Fi, the podcast for medical students and aspiring psychiatrists. Waiting for the biggest I told you so moment for my GameStop stocks. This is Jason, and I'm a core psychiatry trainee at the Oxley's NHS Trust in London. Joining me is Maoli, who did not buy into GameStop when I told him to. I'm not interested in Maoli. Uh, <laughs> I'm not interested in money, mate. <laughs> anyway, welcome. I am a clinical teaching fellow in the East of England. Today we'll be finishing off bipolar disorder and mania with a discussion on management. If you haven't seen the first part to this episode, on a few bits of housekeeping and diagnosis, please check it out after this one, or ideally before, but it's your choice. Now, let's dig into the management. Mm-hmm. The first question we must ask is, inpatient or outpatient? And all this depends on their risk. Patients with milder illnesses? maybe manages outpatients, often with support from the community mental health team, family and friends. Those with more severe mania or depression, especially when showing aggression, reckless behaviour or suicidal behaviour, may require assessment and treatment in the psychiatric inpatient facilities. Severe mood episodes may be accompanied by a loss of insight, and it's not uncommon for patients to refuse voluntary admission. And why would they? They are feeling the best they've ever been as far as they're concerned. In such situations, we might have to make use of the statutory powers for compulsory admission. In other words, sectioning, him, sectioning them by the Mental Health Act. Although involuntary detention may be traumatic for patients and their families and friends, it is sometimes the lesser of two evils in order to prevent deterioration and speed up treatment. One thing that people don't know or overlook is the high risk of suicidality with this patient group. Patients with unipolar and bipolar affective or mood disorders are far more likely to commit suicide than individuals in any other psychiatric risk group. This number being around 15% successful, though this risk of suicide appears to be greater during the first few years of the illness, then goes down over time. This is why a proper risk assessment of their risk of suicide and self-harm is super key. Ooh, if only there was a podcast teaching risk of suicide and self-harm in detail. Oh wait, there is! Episode 1 of the Sci-Fi Podcast, y'all. Check it out if you haven't already. <laughs> okay, so let's say that you have decided to manage your manic patient on the wards. What do you do next? Well, first of all, you would need to run a few investigations. But even before that, a full physical examination would be valuable, 
as patients tend to ignore their physical needs and ailments when unwell and may not volunteer this information. So make sure to look out for their hydration status, any neurological abnormalities, and intercurrent physical illnesses. Then lab investigations-wise perform the usual suspects including full blood count, urea and electrolytes, thyroid function test, liver function test, urine drug screens, as well as a, a serum drug level if they're already on medications. A baseline ECG and metabolic screen for their glucose, triglycerides, cholesterol are important as well, especially if they're already on psychotropic medications. Lastly, consider an EEG, electroencephalogram, or neuroimaging, depending on history or examination that leans in favor of an organic cause. With the investigations done and dusted, we move on to the medications used. The ones to know about would be mood stabilizers, antipsychotics, and benzodiazepines. Let's start off with a common drug class, the mood stabilizers. Examples include lithium and anticonvulsants, or in other words, anti-seizure drugs, such as valproate, carbamazepine, and lamotrigine. A mood stabilizer can be defined most simply as a drug that improves either depression or mania, uh, but does not worsen or precipitate either state. So, what do you need to know about lithium? Historically, lithium salts were used as salt substitutes in heart disease, but they were banned in the States in 1949, following several deaths resulting from toxicity. Uh, at which point someone thought it was a good idea to use lithium in treating psychiatric patients? Uh, no, well, kinda. <laughs> um, look, that year, and completely unrelated uh, to the whole heart disease thing, probably, John Cade investigated the use of lithium in psychosis and he found that there was a therapeutic effect in mania. Though, the problems with toxicity remained until the introduction of drug levels monitoring in the 1960s. Since then, lithium has been prescribed widely for the treatment of severe affective disorder. Is that true more for treating the acutely unwell patient or for prophylaxis and maintenance? Well, both actually, but it is usually better for long-term prophylaxis with something like half of manic patients showing a favorable response to it. A small point, though, is that full therapeutic effect is usually not seen until about three weeks into starting treatment with lithium. Right, and does that apply to all the types of bipolar disorder that we discussed in the last episode? Not quite. As monotherapy, it's often more effective in managing mild rather than severe cases of mania. Also, Lithium tends not to be effective in rapid cycling bipolar disorder. That's the one where you have four or more mood episodes per year. And the same goes for mania secondary to organic brain disease. Going back to toxicity, this is the side of things that I'm more familiar with being a medic. Um, Show up. <laughs> lithium has a narrow therapeutic index between 0.6 to 1.2 millimoles per litre, depending on the lab assay you used. Um, for anyone interested, of course. This means that anything above this range risks toxicity, and that's why blood level monitoring and compliance are important. Before we initiate treatment, we check renal, cardiac, and thyroid function first. If so, someone has risk factors for or actually has cardiac disease, then an ECG is recommended. And also, BMI, 
Electrolytes at a full blood count should also be measured before treatment initiation. With monitoring, lithium levels must be checked a week after starting or changing doses. You would monitor weekly until a steady therapeutic level has been achieved and then every three months after. With renal and thyroid function, or using these in TFTs, as you touched on earlier, are worth checking every three to six months since lithium can cause renal impairment and hypothyroidism. Yep, as effective as it is for the long term, you can appreciate that getting regular blood tests for monitoring and when patients are acutely unwell and resisting treatment would be a huge pain for the medical team as well as the patients, sometimes impossible. There is also no injectable version of lithium, meaning that compliance is extremely important, adding another layer of difficulty. If abruptly stopped, lithium can also cause rebound mania, getting us back to square one, and so discussions with the patient and psychoeducation is key to prevent this. I think it's also important to know that different preparations of lithium exist and do matter. This is also true for certain anticonvulsants as well. With lithium, the two salts, citrate and carbon, uh, carbonate, have different amounts of lithium, and so you can't just use the same dose when switching between the two. So now it's a mnemonic time, baby! The side effects of lithium can be remembered with the acronym lithiums with an S. It's no swim and swap from episode 2, but it's at least easy to remember. Oh god, swim and swap. Clearly a favourite of Mali's. No. <laughs> but without further ado, let's start with the mnemonic. So L for leukocytosis or an increase in your white cell count. I would be insipidus of the diabetes variety. Oh, and more specifically, nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, where you get resistance to the effects of uh, vasopressin. Nerd. Uh, but yes, uh, for people who are unfamiliar with this, I think diabetes just means you pee a lot, and then insipidus means, like, tasteless, right? Yes. Um, with diabetes mellitus, it means, uh, what do you call it? You pee a lot of sugary things. That's the mellitus. Um, do you know what a sour urine is? Uh, what? A UTI. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I'll. So, tea, <laughs> tremors and thirst. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Um, teas are tremors and thirst, and so it sort of makes sense that with the thirst. If you're going to pee a lot of tasteless urine, you're going to want to have to drink water to replace it. Um, H would be hair loss and hypo or hyperthyroidism, with hypothyroidism being more common than hyper. I would be interactions with other drugs. You know, that's technically not side effects per se. Yeah, well, you're not a side effect per se. I suppose that's true. Anyway, beware of uh, non-steroid or anti-inflammatories, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, diuretics, and even antipsychotics, as they can all increase the level of lithium. Which would risk more side effects, right? Hmm? Hmm? No. Fine. Okay. Um, you. Upset stomach. So, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, so on. M is for muscle weakness, metallic taste, 
and mommies beware. Mommies beware. As in, beware in pregnancy and breastfeeding. Ah, again, not a side effect. So listeners, uh, you know, unfortunately this will be Maui's last episode on the podcast. <laughs> say, say goodbye now and I'll probably replace him with that robot text-to-speech woman I found before. Anywho, S is for skin, as in acne and psoriasis. Despite Jason's excellent acronym, I would say that you probably don't need to know about all these side effects. I would say more amazing than excellent, but (laughs) that's true. Uh, There's a lot to remember. I'd imagine your consultant would be impressed if you rattle out three or four of these side effects. It's more important to be aware of them, so that if someone on lithium exhibits any of these symptoms, you'd be able to recognize it if they were caused by lithium or not. Now, lithium toxicity is more important to know about. The two main systems involved are the gastrointestinal and neurological, which can further be separated into motor and cerebral, with symptoms of toxicity varying from mild to severe. In terms of the gastrointestinal features of toxicity, they can vary from nausea and diarrhea to vomiting and incontinence. With motor, it can be from a fine tremor to myoclonus, Parkinson's, or cerebellar dysfunction. And the cerebral features of toxicity can range from impaired concentration and drowsiness to really serious symptoms like seizures, apathy, and coma. These symptoms and signs of toxicity usually develop over a period of days and may be triggered by salt depletion or low blood sodium levels. This is as when you have low sodium, your body tries to conserve what it has available. One thing it does is it decreases the amount you pee out by reabsorbing sodium in your kidneys. But lithium ends up also being reabsorbed in this process, which can increase the levels of lithium. Yep, the start of diarrhea, vomiting or excessive sweating should alert you to the possibility of impending toxicity. Now. We've probably said too much about lithium, so let's whiz through the anticonvulsants, starting with sodium valproate. Valproate is handy in patients with mania who do not respond to lithium or carbamazepine. It takes about as long as lithium to start working, so about three weeks, and may also help in prophylaxis. But it tends to be particularly dependable in managing rapid cycling bipolar disorder, where lithium is less handy. With monitoring, liver function tests or LFTs may be checked before and during treatment. It should be done especially in children or where there's a history of pre-existing liver disease. Mali, guess what acronym for the side effects of Valproate is? Mm, not sure. What? Valproate. Boom! <laughs> you know what? I guess it helps people remember it at least. Exactly. Straight. Forward and simple, like me. Don't think that's something to be proud of. <laughs> eh, says you. So, starting with V for vomiting, A for ataxia, L, liver damage, mostly acute liver damage, P, pancreatitis, and also for P, polycystic ovarian syndrome. R for rash and retention of fats. Ooh, I like that. So, obesity. Um, O for edema. Uh, this, this, um, this mnemonic completely falls apart this... if you're American. 
So uh, that would be Valpriate. Uh, so don't be American do, or don't spell do, it like that. Do you know? Do you know what you can replace uh, edema with obesity? Then you don't have to be so creative with retention of fats. Just, yeah. just say. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I like retention of fats. All right. No, me Anyways. too. Me too. <laughs> so A would be appetite increase and alopecia. So balding. T would be tremors and teratogenicity. So mommies beware. Uh, and E, enzyme inhibitor. And in a smaller way, they can induce as well, but largely, valproate is an enzyme inhibitor. I guess the bottom line is that for people who cannot tolerate lithium, valproate may be an alternative. Also, the monitoring is less stringent as you don't need serum levels. The NETS anticonvulsant, that is also a mood stabilizer, is carbamazepine. The main take-home message with carbamazepine is that it can be effective in the acutely unwell patient. Studies show around 50-60% of patients with mania show a favourable response. But there is less evidence to support its role in prophylaxis. Also, there is a suggestion that despite the initial response rate, its effectiveness may diminish over 2-3 to three years. Overall, it tends to be less favoured than lithium and valproate. The most common side effects are nausea, dizziness, ataxia, and diplopia. Other side effects also include headache, drowsiness, and nystagmus. What? No acronym this time. Well, some things in life are better without an acronym. So you couldn't think of one. There are a lot of words in carbamazepine, Maoli. I'm a psychiatrist, not a miracle worker. And uh, yeah, and also, also the other thing with carbamazepine is that. You know, it's not, it's not as big a heavy hitter as lithium and valproate, so we don't tend to use it very much anymore. Hmm. Fair enough. Um, occasionally, serious toxic side effects may develop with carbamazepine, such as a granulocytosis where you don't have any neutrophils or white cells really floating around. You also get uh, aplastic anemia or even Steven Johnson syndrome. Leukopenia may develop in 1-2% to of patients, and this is most frequently transient occurring at the initiation of treatment. And finally, we have lamotrigine. Lamotrigine has been shown to have an antidepressant effect in bipolar depression, but it appears only to have a weak anti-mania effect. It may be particularly useful in the management of bipolar 2 disorder and rapid cycling bipolar disorder, but other than that, its use is limited for now. So that's mood stabilizers done. Let's talk about antipsychotics, a class we previously discussed in our psychosis episode. Despite their name, antipsychotics also have sedative, anxiolytic, antimania, antidepressive, and mood-stabilizing properties to varying degrees. Some, like uh, quetiapine and olanzapine, show all of these activities. Those two, quetiapine and olanzapine, are examples of atypical antipsychotics. For the typical antipsychotics, haloperidol is commonly used, especially if you need rapid recovery and if the patient is not compliant with oral meds. Other atypicals that are used would also include aripiprazole, clozapine, and risperidone. Looking at the literature, antipsychotics are not only pretty effective in mania, but also for prophylaxis. As we talked about in the psychosis episode, antipsychotic choice is a matter of side effects and compliance. If you need a further explanation, please refer to episode 3, 
Give me an extra listen. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Shameless plugs aside, um, the last drug class that we'll be talking about is benzodiazepines. While technically not essential, benzodiazepines can have a role in the management of acutely unwell patients, particularly if nighttime sedation is needed to manage the overactivity and mania. But benzo use should be limited to the lowest possible dose for the shortest period because of their potential dependency issues. Z-hypnotics or Z-hypnotics, such as Zoplicone, may also be an alternative for sleep issues. I have a love-hate relationship with benzos, just because it is quite effective in manic patients. But I'm always worried about a tendency to forget to remove it after, just because zonked-out patients are easier to manage. Once they get used to the effect of benzos, tolerance and addiction may build up. And you need to have that awkward conversation on the ward, where they're like, I'm agitated, give me benzos. And you know that if you refuse, they will get agitated, and then it's a never-ending cycle of people knocking on your door and seeking benzos. So that wraps up the meds we would use for bipolar disorder, but let's not ignore the non-med stuff as well, like psychoeducation, psychotherapy, and electroconvulsive therapy. So, psychoeducation. One thing that tends to be ignored is the involvement of the manic patient themselves. Hmm. Psychoeducation fields in this void. Um, and, it also, and it's all about exploring a patient's understanding and having frank discussions about their condition, as well as the medications used. Studies have shown proper psychoeducation leads to early detection of relapse patterns, improves treatment compliance, and induction of lifestyle regularity. There's also group psychoeducation. This is also shown to reduce relapses, both in terms of total episodes, but also prolong the time between different episodes, whether it be depression, mania, hypermania, or mixed. It can also help shrink the number of hospitalizations and their length. Now, with psychotherapy, here we have good old CBT, or cognitive behavioral therapy. I feel like when in doubt about the possible psychotherapy modalities, you could confidently answer CBT, and you'd be right. Beck's original cognitive model of depression has been adapted to provide a framework for understanding the psychopathology of bipolar disorders. Cognitive therapy using this model is designed to facilitate acceptance of the disorder and the need for treatment. This helps teach early recognition of relapse signatures, as well as strategies to cope with depression and hypomania. It can also have knock-on effects on improving medication adherence. I guess it also helps with the usual CBT stuff like recognising and managing psychosocial stresses or interpersonal problems, identifying and modifying negative automatic thoughts and underlying maladaptive uh, assumptions and beliefs. Very astute of you, Mali. I guess you are retaining stuff from the episodes we are doing. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you. And plan turn Mali into a psychiatrist via the podcast is running smoothly. <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> and lastly, we have ECT or electroconvulsive therapy. As mentioned in the past episodes, ECT is an effective treatment for mood disorders, despite the negative public perception. It is recommended in patients with severe depressive illnesses, catatonia, or a prolonged or severe manic episode. 
and only then, after an adequate trial of other treatments, has proven ineffective and or when the condition is considered to also be potentially life-threatening. If you want to know more, check out our psychosis and depression episodes. So, we have covered all the tools available for the treatment of bipolar disorder. You now need to know when to use them. This, uh, this depends on the distinct phases of the bipolar disorder, which are acute mania, acute depression, and then maintenance treatment. Also, while we haven't talked about it in detail, you should always consider social issues and stressors in each patient's life, as well as the interventions we could put in place to help them. There have been many a life ruined because of a single manic phase. I have myself seen several engagements broken, divorces, and also people going into severe financial debt, such as with Maoli's island-buying story in the previous episode. Having a crisis plan put in place and the involvement of family and friends is key to reduce the damage to a minimum. Alright, rant over. Let's discuss the stepwise treatment of acute mania. Good point, though, and I should clarify that I did not buy an island. <laughs> it was just a patient I came across. If you want to find out more, listen to our previous episode. <laughs> right. If the patient is already on mood stabilizers, I think the main thing to say is optimize the dose and check serum levels as necessary. If they aren't on a mood stabilizer, then first line would be lithium, an antipsychotic, or valproate. Generally, if you need a quicker resolution or if they're not willing to take meds, use of antipsychotics would be preferred as they are more rapid acting and can be given as an injection. In the long run, lithium would help to prevent more episodes and so starting them on this would be beneficial. And as said before, supplementation with benzos or Z or Z hypnotics may help in the acute state. If monotherapy doesn't work, then using combination therapy of lithium with an antipsychotic or valproate with an antipsychotic can be tried. If this doesn't work, then clozapine and electroconvulsive therapy should be considered. The usual pattern of treatment I would be seeing in a medication-naive manic patient would be the use of antipsychotics in the early stages if you need a quick resolution, with a goal of starting them on lithium after they have improved enough and regained insight in order to psychoeducate and have a discussion about medication choice. Awesome. Now, acute depression in bipolar disorder. Here, the general treatment rules apply. So, if on mood stabilizers, then stabilize levels, optimize dose. But unlike in mania, lumotrigine and atypical antipsychotics are more effective for depressive episodes. So, it may be more useful in bipolar type 2 with its predominant depressive episodes. And if this doesn't work, then an antidepressant with a mood stabilizer may be combined. And if this still doesn't work, then you have electroconvulsive therapy or ECT. Lastly, maintenance treatment or prophylaxis. As said before, lithium proves to be the best for prevention. And if that doesn't work or is poorly tolerated because of side effects, you can try the other mood stabilizers using valproate or carbamazepine or an atypical antipsychotic like olanzapine. Combination therapy is the next alternative, and this is usually some combination of lithium valproate and cotiapine. So lithium plus valproate, lithium plus cotiapine, or uh, valproate plus cotiapine. If all else fails, you have the last results of maintenance ECT and clozapine. Side note, in rapid cycling, Lamotrigine seems to be superior to lithium for maintenance. 
It is important to identify and treat comorbid conditions such as hyperthyroidism or substance misuse that may be contributing to the cycling. And in the event of pregnant patients, some psychotropic drugs used in the maintenance phase of bipolar disorder can be teratogenic. Yeah, the risk does not appear to be as great with antipsychotic agents, lamotrigine, and antidepressants. Lithium, carbamazepine, and valproate are all associated with higher risk of fetal abnormalities. With breastfeeding, there is no absolute contraindication with any of the drugs used in bipolar disorder, but women taking lithium should be advised not to breastfeed. <laughs> breast. Oh, crap, dude. So after all this, how do bipolar disorder patients fare prognosis-wise, Malika? It's Malisan. <gasps> Did I have a weeby otaku Japanophile name from the moment I was born? Was this destiny? Who am I? Nani? Existential crisis aside, the duration of mania episodes before effective medications came along was usually around 3 to 12 months. Uh, sure. Um, it appears that duration of episodes is dependent on a number of factors, of which the most important is response to medications. Yeah, this is why it is so important to find the glass slipper medication-wise. If found, then full depressive episodes typically last two to five months, and manic episodes around two or so months. Though bipolar disorder is a chronic and recurrent condition, with the average number of mood episodes being estimated in the ballpark of sort of 10 or so. This, however, hugely varies between person to person, with many experiencing a lot more than 10 episodes in their lifetime. Yep, the quicker we act to treat, the less likely for them to have subsequent episodes. And that about wraps up this episode. To recap the key points, Risk assessment is important to decide if a patient needs to be admitted involuntarily, and in this case of manic patients, this is more likely than not. Mood stabilizers such as lithium, valproate, and carbamazepine, along with antipsychotics, are useful in treating bipolar disorder, with varying efficiencies depending on whether it's for the acute phase or maintenance, as well as which mood state is predominant. If medications don't work, Consider combination medications and ECT as a last resort. Good psychoeducation for the patient is key, and the main aim is to improve compliance with medications and their understanding of their mental health conditions in order to prevent further relapses. Awesome. If you've made it this far, thank you for listening. As always, we would love to hear from you. Yep. Message us on Twitter at Podcast. Like us on Facebook at Sci-Fi Podcast or email us at questionsforpp at gmail.com. That's the number four and double letter P's. Let us know if you have any questions, feedback or ideas for upcoming episodes. We look forward to meeting you in our next episode in around about two weeks time. Mali, we haven't had a good track record recently, so let's just not commit and say at some point this year. Uh, anywho, don't forget to subscribe. Again, thanks to Kevin McLeod for the intro and outro music. Well, until then, stay safe, stay sane, and stay well. I didn't mention this in the previous episode, but you know the spiciest instant noodles I was talking about? That's Malaysian made, baby! It's called the Ghost Pepper Spicy Chicken Ramen. Look it up and try it at your own peril. Please don't. <laughs> Anywho, uh, all the best, take care, and bye-bye! Bye-bye.
Hey Jason, I am so sorry for running away. Shall we get started on the recording now? Hello? Is anyone there? Anyone? Damn it. You screwed up Ravina. You're one chance in the spotlight.